internet, we will burn that bridge when we come to it. My name is Matthew Kroll. And I am the Storm. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Mission Impossible Fallout. And I'm going to guarantee, I'm going to go on a limb here. And okay. Say we are definitely the only podcast about Mission Impossible. Nobody, nobody. No one. Actually, well, okay, maybe I'm telling a lie. When, at my screening last night, and I kid you not, I saw definitely... Three other podcast hosts who I kind of know who they are, Aww. and they were all at the same screening. And I was like, "We're all doing this. We're all going away immediately after this to record because we all want to catch that wave, yeah. that fallout wave, that, that fallout wave. You gotta get down with the friction or yeah. whatever." As the theme song points out, God, that song's been stuck in my head. I didn't know that was the song, and I was like, "I was like, they did, uh, you know, like right before we walked in, I was like, they didn't know big song this year. There was no Limp Biscuit, and you were like, no, 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 oh, no. They did. Imagine oh, no, Dragons sir. is back." Um, um, the theme, the theme music for Mission Impossible films for me has always been. This is okay, 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 We're, okay, okay. This is just something I want okay. to talk about right up top because I think it's okay. fun. The first sound, the first song mm-hmm. uh, for Mission Impossible One was the guys from U two did it right. Yeah, and they they made it like that early two thousands, um, slightly elect, sort of like it felt like a Fat Boy Slim song, but it wasn't. Yeah, kind of like that. Uh, they, I I think, in my opinion, they did the best version. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, and then uh, you know it, it it moves with the times because then it went like a little too far with the Limp Biscuit song. Yeah. Um, and the music video for that is hilarious. If you have not watched it, look up Mission Impossible 2 theme Limp Biscuit, and it is a delight to watch Fred Durst and friends in t-shirts try to be secret agents. <laughs> uh, and then, as you said, Shahir, for 3, 4, and 5, they went back to more of a classical sort of scoring and just sort of reimagining of the original television show theme. Yeah, but they, I, I, now that you mentioned it, there were songs associated with it, but not... Not, I, I think the thing with Mission Impossible is that they're trying to. The, the original idea for Mission Impossible as a franchise was can we do an American James Bond? Yeah. So and you so, need songs. So you need the song. And then somewhere along the lines, that idea kind of like fell away. But who knows? Maybe 22 movies later or something like that, that'll become consistent. You sure. Know, like, uh, because now they're swinging the pendulum right back. They're yeah. going to, to full blown Imagine Dragons songs, which, which as you read the the lyrics, oh my god, as you read the lyrics, gung gung, you said we, we, they made no sense, gung yeah. gung. We did a thing where we read the lyrics out loud, and I was like, <laughs> this is not a song about anything. It's not about anything, but that means you hear like all good pop music. It could be about anything, right? Yeah, it's like you can't fight the friction, so ease it off. You can't take the pressure, so ease it off. Don't tell me to be strong. Ease it off. <laughs> you can't fight the friction, so yeah, yeah, yeah? Yeah! I think there should be a lot more question marks in the song. Anyway, I love the whole arc of Mission Impossible music, and I just wanted to talk about that right up top. Shir, how are you, buddy? I'm good. I went to see this last night so uh, in IMAX. I, I, like, I paid the premium. Ooh. I bought the tickets early. Well, it's a good thing you did do that and you didn't use MoviePass because last night, my friend, yeah. MoviePass went down. So they lost 99% of their stock value. Yep. The app is no longer functional. It says it's functioning again now, though I haven't tried it. I went to see this film at 11 o'clock yesterday morning, Friday morning. Did they charge you peak? peak they part? would have if it worked. I, I looked on the app because it's like, oh, you can't do it. You can't use it. It was still broken in the morning. Yeah. And then, yeah, 11 a.m. would have been peak prices. But so did you did you buy a ticket normally? I just bought a ticket normally. Okay, yeah. You just threw some money at you. I was like, yeah. I don't want to deal with this problem. Well, I, to, well, I couldn't you throw your wallet at I, the, yeah, at the and, and then I, after I picked it up and used my credit card. But you couldn't use the app. You couldn't right. use the thing at all. So I think the days of MoviePass are uh, are... Are, are dwindling. Yeah, I, I and I feel like this is going to be talked about in business classes for years to come. So what do you think? 
I have my theories, but what do you think the fatal flaw in MoviePass's uh, business model was? Uh, I think it's the okay. It's twofold. It's it's hubris. Ooh, thinking ooh, you're getting psychological. Thinking about this. that thinking that uh, using Silicon Valley think tank thinking. At like the way apps sort of work, mm-hmm. like it, it using that sort of profit model, but trying to incorporate it into an actual, you know, cultural human behavior, and out that that mm-hmm. that takes place pretty much essentially outside of the cell phone. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a problem there, and then that's why they thought, oh, we can do this this cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they but now they obviously can't do it that cheap. It, yeah. They're losing money. They had to actually shut it down. Um, and I think the second problem is honestly thinking again, and this is very sort of like appy sort of uh, thought process that choice is what people really want. And by that, I mean the surge pricing thing. They're like, oh, let's spin this. So we charge people more for specific films under the guise of, uh, we want people to explore different films when that's they don't give a shit what you see. They just want to make sure that they fill well they do to fill the, the optimum amount of seats and so there's not clustering and they don't lose more money. The 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 idea of surge pricing is ridiculous. Honestly, they should just up the entire service five dollars and they'd be fine. Right. No one would bat an I like ten dollars to fifteen dollars for for unlimited movies or four movies or whatever they've knocked it down to, they've been slowly chiseling it away, um, would be fine. And I think, and it'd be simple. I think people, I mean, Apple figured this out forever ago. You make something simple and people just use it. Right. iTunes, right? Or Spotify now. <laughs> iTunes like, is not a good example. Well, no, but like, for, but no, back in the day, so everyone was stealing and pirating music, Napster yeah. and all, LimeWire. And I don't know what those things are. Don't come, don't talk to me. Uh, and then when it became simple enough, to have a steady service where you just pay 99 cents for a song. Yeah. Then people just started doing that because it's easy. It's easier than digging to find like an illegal download and you'd have it right there and it's boom and it's done. Now, granted, there's DRM problems and, you know, all that shit. Anyway, MoviePass is not sustainable. I am excited um, slash trepidatious about the AMC Pass. Yeah. I just wish there was one in Queens. <laughs> AMC? Uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, what about you? What do you think? What do you I, think? I, I would, I would, I would uh, say this is much simpler than that, which is the the economic model didn't work. But but I think the economic model didn't work because they didn't have enough market capitalization. So the problem is they didn't have enough cash to sustain the the Silicon Valley technology route, which is to create a large user base. Like so, originally MoviePass came out, it was fifty bucks. Yep, that is too high, high a proposition to yes. say infinite movies because I was like, well, I have to then therefore see more than six movies a month, which I don't necessarily do. Yeah, so that makes it economically inefficient. Then they dropped the price down to nine ninety nine, which is a which is a fantastic deal. That's like. You know, uh, I I just need to see two movies and I'm broken even. I just need to see one movie. One in New York, yeah. Yeah, and I'm pretty much broken even. Um, So the issue there is they're going to be losing money. Yeah. Um, uh, Unfortunately, and and what you need to do in order to lose money is have market um, venture capitalists kind of invest in your in your platform. And I think they had a great platform. I actually do think they work. This is the this is the for me the sad part about movie passes. I think it actually is a technology that works. Uh, I think it is an idea that works. Uh, unfortunately, they just couldn't sustain the model somehow because um, they had a couple of different ideas playing on what they were going to do with your user data, yep. what they were going to do with um, uh, 
you know, how they were going to try and uh, to, to basically the 999 was to try and attract the most users in the hope that 60% of the users would only see one movie a month and they would kind of offset the price for the remaining 40% of users. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way because the price is so good. And then you've got this problem in the. Um, in the modern economy of uh, not free market writers, but but basically where uh, once you set a price, it's very difficult to raise that price. Yeah. Netflix is experiencing experiencing this now. They're realizing they can't. You know, like it's very very difficult for them to up their prices. Um, but I agree with you that Movie Pass should have been around the fifteen dollar mark. Was probably the I, I think the overall lesson here is the pricing, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 around the fifteen dollar mark would have probably made it. Like I think the price of two movies would have justified the cost of Movie Pass. What they did was they made it cheaper than one movie. Oh yeah, eventually. And so and I so I think that's the issue. But then they had a number of other. Um, uh, I think PR failures, uh, which is something that's so important in business now. Like, mm-hmm. Netflix, you remember Netflix when Netflix oh. tried to go to Quickster? Yeah. Uh, so I think MoviePass kind of ventured into that territory when when their CEO revealed that they were using the user, your location user data as well. Yep. Um, and when they kind of failed to impress the market how successful they how important their growth was over anything else. Like, the, if if I was the the movie pass PR people, all I would be emphasizing out in public is growth. Yeah, They're saying hey, we went from a hundred. Uh, they had something along the lines of five hundred thousand users, and they went up to like five million really suddenly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all I would be emphasizing because that would have signaled to the market, hey, we can you know just, this kind of growth and user base is really valuable. Yeah. Um, it'll, I think it'll be talked about in business schools for years. I think there will be more information to come to light. I have a sneaking suspicion MoviePass won't die. I think MoviePass will reemerge in some fashion because they've just collected so much user data and they have a functioning app. I think this will I think MoviePass and it's and it's such in the public limelight. I feel like you MoviePass will either reemerge in some other form or will conti- will somehow survive this, but like the mighty phoenix Maybe, but then again, losing ninety nine percent of your stock value, like the Nasdaq indicates to you that uh, pretty much they're gonna they'll strike you off the list within I think it's ten days, oh. and so they have a pretty uphill battle right now. But that I got an, a movie pass email after I walked out of Mission Impossible last night saying, "Hey, there's this movie. Would you like to go see it?" Uh, For so, Mission Impossible? No, it was something else. I yeah, because they don't want you to go to Mission Impossible. I can't remember what the movie pass movie was that they were trying. Oh, it was uh, the Row, so like a, a little indie horror film. May- that maybe that was the other issue as well is that they were trying to capitalize their user um, the user information to like sell smaller movies what they should have been trying to go for is those bigger movies but i don't know well they can't they can't keep doing the bigger movies because that's the problem that's the only reason they're advertising the smaller movies is because the demand for the larger movies is not yeah. like the, the 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 diversity of what they're actually selling isn't yeah. there like there's only so many seats yeah um so and also the way that they uh, you're you're 100% right about the PR thing. Like the but they tried to do that Silicon Valley sort of thing where it's like they wanted enough users to be able to bully the physical locations that they relied on to show their films and then like AMC and a couple Regals and a couple other places have been like, "Uh, eh, no." I I actually I like that approach. I think they if they tried to partner with AMC or Regal or you know any other movie change, I think they wouldn't have got as far as they did. To me, they're the little tank that the, the, the little uh, train that could, and sure. and and I think there's something to be gained 
from that because I think they broke a wall between like AMC and Regal. They broke some kind of wall about their pricing, mm. and and now everyone's questioning that pricing. Whether they they survive on their own, I don't know. I think they won't survive, but it will have done enough, uh, I'll call it cultural damage, where people like AMC are going to charge, they'll be okay charging their $20 for three films and all their free perks and shit you get. Like, they've made made the other people have to change their business model, which I think is good. What is the most, uh, uh, what is that line from Inception? What is the most resilient idea? It's a parasite or something? Yeah. yeah. What is the most resilient parasite? An An idea. idea. Yeah, so now we're there. Now (laughs) we're there. Anyway, we have, we, have, we have a lot to get to. Sorry we did a little movie pass tangent. I just found that very interesting when I went to the film yesterday, and I was like, oh, look at you well, running out of money. Well, one more tangent. Uh, in an email from uh, listener Will, we wanted to talk uh, just I – think, I think we have to talk about this very briefly. Sure. It's on, everyone, it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, will had requested a film, which we uh, will release in a couple of uh, – very shortly. In a couple of very shortlies. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, in one of our correspondence with Will, by the way, I haven't been able to stop thinking about this. James Gunn yes. shit. Um, he linked me to an article. I wrote him an, a, a, an email back. But Matt, I, I the first when I heard the James Gunn shit, I was like, oh Matt, oh dude. I like all I was thinking about was you. Yeah, and oh. I was like, I was like, this is gonna hurt Matt so bad. I was like, should I tell him? <laughs> Does he know? Well, you like? Do I leave? Do I leave some flowers for him? How does this? How does? How am I going to play this? You, you were the first one to tell me, and then I, I looked it up and I did a lot of research, and I actually didn't really respond to anything on Twitter or anything for a while because I wanted to, you know, figure out actually not just jump on the not just jump on the gun. Yeah, jump on the bandwagon. Uh, yeah. Ooh, look at we both did a good bad thing. Uh, yeah, it's um, turns out it's a very complex thing. Um, I am more on the the stance of uh, actually again friend of the show movie Bob. I retweeted he wrote uh, a great article which he turned into a great video. You can see it on YouTube mm-hmm. uh, that breaks down breaks it down in the most uh, in depth like logic to in depth ratio like I've seen in any of the journalism for it. Mm-hmm. And it's just complicated because on on one hand back in the day James Gunn I mean he was uh, 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 a shock. Uh, director, comic sort of guy. He started up in trauma films, so he like, was a. Uh, or did he actually yeah. direct any trauma films? Uh, Romeo and Juliet. Did he direct Romeo? I Juliet? believe so. Oh, are you sure about that? I'm 95 percent sure about did, it. I know. I know he did Slither, which yeah, I'd seen, did which, which I seen and I actually really enjoyed. Um, did he direct Romeo and Juliet? I am 95 percent sure. Do, let's do this. No, Lloyd Kaufman. He <laughs> wrote it. He wrote it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then and then jumped into the Scooby Doo, the Scoobiverse. Um and also Super, which I haven't seen, but Super It's it's good. It's yeah. fine. But uh, Super is also kind of it has a little bit of a shock value. Oh, a hundred percent. So um so so I guess where I sort of fall in it, not that anyone gives a shit, I guess only I do, is that it's <laughs> it's um Well I ah, so I wanna know. I am more on the train of a, of of two different trains. One Disney can do whatever the fuck they want. Mm-hmm. Do I think they made the right call in firing James Gunn in this particular case? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, all of the stuff that has come to light, quote unquote, uh, is stuff that he apologized for six years ago. Right. Like before all of the Guardian. Like they, like this was this isn't the first time all these tweets have been dredged up. This is just the first time that it clicked in the media. Right. And look, the tweets are awful and not funny and just kind of stupid. Like, but they, they, 
they just remind me of a young dude trying to be edgy. And that right. now that in itself can 100%, as we've seen, be damaging to culture in general. Right. But he's come out and actually the, it, even the fact that like the two Guardians movies are literally about assholes becoming better people. Mm -hmm. Like in, in all of his, you know, a lot of his uh, Guardians family and his brother wrote a beautiful set of sort of tweets about the sort of growth and what he's seen change in his brother and like all this stuff and da 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 da. It's just, it's just a shame. And and the, and the third uh, most weird thing about this is the guy who like tried to unearth the tweets is also the Pizzagate guy, Michael Cernovich. Yeah, and uh, it, it's just a weird. It, by doing this, again, I say Disney can do whatever they want, but they're giving sort of these trolls a bit of uh, a, a leverage. Like they they got a prominent director fired for a thing he did six years ago to which he already publicly apologized for the first time it all came out, and Disney still found it fine to hire him then. Yeah. Um, that And that's, the, the I guess, the fourth and final thing. Like Disney knew about all this shit. Mm -hmm. This isn't like a new thing that came to light. Yeah. Uh, and then you obviously have, uh, you know, people on all different sides jumping on one end of the bandwagon or another, even fucking, was it Ted Cruz? Right. Tweeted about it. Did he? I yeah. Didn't, and he's like, oh my God, if, if half of the things James Gunn said are real, he should be prosecuted. And it's like, motherfucker. Didn't, didn't Ted Cruz accidentally tweet porn once? Yeah. <laughs> he's not a, a, look, and, 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 I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's, it's a, it's a tough thing, but this is the first one where, I, I I feel like I know enough where I'm I my what what I think about it I think is correct I, I for the most <laughs> part for as, as as correct as one person in a societal conversation about morality can be right um as far as the rehire James Gunn thing yeah I I would love that I don't think that's plausible I don't think Disney is going no matter how many petitions are signed no matter how many of that things I just think that they're too big and don't care and uh, and I mean again maybe I'm wrong maybe the groundswell and the negative consequences of like seeing Disney as not an invincible thing that is actually subjugated or subjectable to trolling yeah uh, maybe that'll do something I don't know. So, um, I want to keep this brief. Uh, I think uh, the corporate decision to fire James Gunn was problematic, but uh, only for a couple of reasons. I agree with you that Disney, and it was actually, I was, I was having a conversation with a, a friend of ours, Sarah, oh. uh, about this, and she was like, Disney can do whatever they want, and they need to like respond to this. Um, and I don't disagree with that sentiment. Uh, what I disagree with is the is the broader implications of what this means. Yeah, precedent. And, uh, the, the precedent it sits and the precedent it sits is that um you can be fired for a joke and uh regardless of your taste of jokes you know whatever that is i, I think one of the interesting things is and this is something that well and i talked about a little bit briefly was the notion that digital communications even any communications can be stripped of its context yes and and without context james gunn's jokes seem reprehensible but that's the point is that that's the context that they were kind of created in I don't want to go into an assessment of what his jokes were, but regardless, I think the point is there is that they were jokes. Uh, and and the Vulture article that Will sent me kind of makes that point as well, which is that, um, you know, making a joke about a thing doesn't mean you're endorsing that thing. Um, and, and I think, yeah, this is kind of leading to a broader culture of... Um, of fear of communication, fear mm. of fear of actually saying things. Yeah, um, and I think the 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 reason that that is problematic is that um, the one of the main um, 
tenets of free speech is that you have the right to defend free speech, even the speech you find repugnant. Right. Um, so I, uh, I think there is a broader implication here that is uh, a little bit... Um, Pro- that is actually very problematic. Now, uh, yeah, will James Gunn be fine? I, yeah, he'll be fine. Um, oh, I'm will, not worried about his like yeah, him eating. Yeah, exactly, or anything like that. I'm not worried about that. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I feel like the Guardians franchise as a film will be probably fine. Um, you know, I, I think Disney's a well-oiled enough machine to kind of jump back on that train, and I'm sure they'll they'll kind of make it work, you know, a la Edgar Wright leaving Ant-Man. I'm sure they'll find some way to make it work. Um, I think this might be the first, like, actual behind-the-scenes chink. Like, the Edgar Wright thing was almost an issue until it wasn't, but that yeah. was because the film hadn't come out yet. This is an established universe with a very established feel. Like, you can feel the director's hands on the entirety of both of those movies, and... The unfortunate thing will be is if, uh, if Disney can kind of write the train on Guardians of the Galaxy. For example, if they release the film and it's perfectly fine it that has even broader implications for like auteur theory and, yeah. and you know like the importance of the director and 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 I think we're already seeing that 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 equation is being eroded away and maybe it should be I don't know yeah um so in, re- in regards to the James Gunn thing I will say this we are going to have an episode about mm-hmm. uh, art and artists and I think the James Gunn topic will come into focus uh, a little bit more clearly there because it's just happened and so we're just kind of responding to it right now yeah but the com- we we have been having an ongoing conversation behind the scenes that we want to turn into a podcast uh, about the 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 separation of art from artists um, and um this will be a really interesting case study uh, to look at uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of Guardians of the Galaxy, in terms of how we feel about uh, how important arts are, the artists are from the art. Uh, so we will return to this topic yes. in, in due process. In, in the meantime, I think we both said what we what we think. I about think that. so. Uh, and we should jump over to to Mission Impossible at some point. But before we do that, <laughs> before we do that, we do have a couple of emails that we want to just uh, we want to go through. Matt, can you read out our first email uh, from listener Zach? Well, this is our second email. Didn't you just read one? Well, you know. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he says, hey, guys, been listening to your podcast for about two years now. Thanks, Zach. And now I absolutely love it. I always loved cinema, but since listening to this, I've been going to the cinema more and more. Yes, achievement unlocked. I also think the reason I love this podcast is because your guys' dynamic reminds us so much of me and my brother. Uh, we both like the MCU, but he is for sure Shahir, and I'm Matt, which leads to a lot of passionate conversations like you guys have. Uh, and I think that's hilarious. We had a little bit of a back and forth uh, with him on the email, which was super fun. Zach, thank you for writing in i'm glad that uh that you i mean i i'm not gonna say you chose a, a right side to have your opinions on uh but i'm sure as shahir said in his response that your brother is very cool as well yeah i think your brother should listen to us and i think he's dope <laughs> as fuck <laughs> so thank you very much zach for for setting that in and then we have one more from anthony yeah so this is an interesting one uh we've been trying to tiptoe around this one for a little bit because we didn't want to give away too many spoilers for sorry to bother you uh, i don't think this does um um, Anthony wrote us a really nice email saying that he enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much for that. Um, what forced his hand to re- in reaching out for us was a discussion on something that we talked about in Sorry to Bother You, which was we had a sort of broader discussion about capitalism and the exchange value for your human life, basically. Right. And, you know, like like your time uh, and, and, you know, like what you do with yourself. What are you worth as a human? Exactly. And um, and then, you know, Anthony, I think, said a really interesting thing, which I really liked here, uh, which is what which he said, this is an actual topic I've struggled with extensively 
favorably on my decision to join the military. Uh, it would be a four-year contract in which I would make great money, have benefits for the rest of my life, and I just wanted to point out that Worry Free, the company that's in, sorry to bother you, yep. is in some ways already out there. And I think that's a that's a great analogy. It's something that we didn't talk about, we didn't think about, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, you know, like, because when we think about work, we think about, like, you go to nine to five and then you come home. Whereas yeah. the military is like, hey, here's your life for four years, you know, take it, we'll, you know, and then after you've done with those four years, America is one of those countries where, um, uh, I guess it's some form of socialism works if you're in the military, you know, like you get great health benefits for the rest of your life, yeah. you have access to banking, you have, uh, uh, cheaper access to education, you know, so th- that's the trade-off you make, uh, in America to live like the rest of the world, basically. Um, but then there's also, I mean, there's also issues from what I hear with like, you know, how, how you know, the, the, the functionality of the VA depending on where you are in the country and like all that stuff. And also, uh, it's just, it is a very interesting thing because worry-free in the film is sort of like, and this isn't a minor spoiler because they set it up with commercials within like the first 10 or 15 minutes. But it's like, you know, people are stressed out about money and and whatever because the economy's tanking. So this one company, again, a uh, uh, Silicon Valley-esque startup type thing it feels like much akin to you know the movie pass discussion before comes in and is like hey listen if you just sign up with us for the rest of your life we'll take care of everything for you and you just have to work this much thing now granted in the film you know some nefarious things come to light and in you know as far as the military is concerned i mean they're very from what i understand upfront with what your what your life will be and what you are actually giving and whatnot and you know then you can weigh the sort of pros and cons it just is a, a interesting uh it's an interesting analogy, and I really appreciate that, Anthony. Uh, First-time listener, yeah. by the way, so thank you, Anthony, for writing in. It got Shaheer and I talking about that uh, a bit, uh, and uh, it was it was a it was a fascinating conversation we hadn't thought about. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. And if you want to uh, reach out to us, um, like Anthony and Zach did, uh, and Will, uh, you can do so at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Um, we appreciate uh, iTunes reviews as well. Yes, please. Send. We won't pay for them. Will we? we? Uh, no, no. Is that an ethical line we'll cross? I think uh, not yet. Well, I would cross it. I just can't afford to cross uh, it. Fair enough. So we would pay you uh, for favorable reviews. We just can't afford. We just to- can't do it. Can we do- give them an IOU? Well, what we could do is we could have them sign up for life. Uh, to sign just up keep to what to, to write to write favorable reviews for us for life. You can only write one review. Oh, <laughs> okay. My business model is flawed. Yeah, I know this ain't gonna work. I'm is there, the, is there an uh, only I'm the movie... movie pass of iTunes reviews? <laughs> You're the movie pass of only movie podcast about <laughs> movies. Uh, is there an app for us? No, no, not yet. But what there is is a review of Mission Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, and Mission Impossible Fallout. <laughs> Mission Impossible Fallout. Don't the call Boston it, years. Don't call it Mission Impossible Six. I think they should rename this film to Mission Impossible uh, Ominous Pelican Cases. Ominous pelican cases, yeah. Because literally, there's at least 25 shots of pelican cases being opened and unlatched very slowly. To be fair, they've got plutonium in them. And I'm glad they've upgraded in the movies to pelican cases, unlike like Back to the Future, which had those like metal cases yeah. that could be dented. Yep. I think these pelican cases are a good thing. I've got a couple of pelican cases. But the interesting thing is, the, the pelican cases, for those of you who don't know, are very good, sturdy, hard plastic cases, normally for you know sensitive equipment, but in our case, film and television equipment. Yeah. And uh, there's one scene in the film, this is a minor spoiler, where uh, there's a... a 
is a fight. You've seen it in the trailer. It's in the bathroom. And um, Henry Cavill takes uh, ostensibly a laptop and smashes a dude across the face with it. And then the laptop is broken. Yeah. But why wasn't it in a Pelican case? A lot of questions to be asked about this movie. <laughs> but we did a review. Uh, the You know, the podcast has only been going for, what, two or three years now? Yeah. So we, in that time, we've only managed to review one Mission Impossible film. We reviewed Rogue Nation. Mm-hmm. Rogu Nation. Yep. Um, and we, I think we had a brief discussion about Rogu Nation in terms of <laughs> what the f- <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of like how we feel a about Mission Impossible and how yep. we feel about Tom Cruise. But li- should we just should we just kind of recap that real quickly? Like sure. Mission Impossible. Like uh, I like it. Uh, it's fu- it's gone up and down for me over the years. Like I said, with the music, I feel like it's the same sort of thing. Like the first one, I really liked. The second one, I was like, this is neat, and I like Doves. And then uh, the the John, third one, God damn you, John Woo. The, the third one is is really you great. Beautiful bastards. And then the fourth and fifth ones were just like consistently like I enjoyed this, but I never really like stop and think about them. You've said that the third one is your favorite. Yeah, I think overall. the third one's great. Uh, I like the first one, Brian De Palma. Uh, you know, like sort of sit the t- well, he's. It's weird because he set the tone for what I thought would be a great movie, and then no other of the, none of the other films have followed that tone. No, they've all kind of taken their and, and I have no problem with yeah. that. Like the concept of setting up a, a, a you know a fran- this franchise, yeah. but then having each section of it feel different enough. Yeah, like I I, I like I, I like that you know Tom Cruise is the producer on these things, and I think he's kind of taken more instead of like a character consistency thing, which is like what you'd expect in the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe, for example. He's opted for more of like, hey, I want to hire great filmmakers to do each chapter of this, yes. and then that means that I am just the cipher in this, and every film is kind of owned by whoever the filmmaker is and what they want to do with it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a cool thing. That that's that's very different to like, say, for example, Jason Bourne, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't do you know Jason Bourne kind of like is like. Let's consistently follow what this character is, at least for the last two films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of like that. I like. Uh, uh, I, I really enjoy the cinema oeuvre of Tom Cruise. Uh, one Thomas Mapother is his original name. Really? Um, yeah, that's his. That's his original name. Huh. Uh, and he changed it to Cruise when he became an actor. Well, um, that's not a bad move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he still has a cousin who is in the film industry, who's his first cousin, but is, has the surname Mapother. Huh. He was a really good actor. He was in uh, in the bedroom. Um, uh, he was a good actor in the bedroom. Or a film, the bedroom. Oh, he's a great actor in my bedroom. Right, he you know faked it for me. But sure, uh, he, so fake it till you make it. No, no, he just faked it because oh. then that's what I appreciate. Oh, all right. Um, he was also in Lost, by the way. The cousin, oh. I, I'm like I'm forgetting his name. I just remember Mapother. When I saw Mapother, I was like, Hey, is that Tom Cruise's cousin? And hey, lo and behold, it was. Um, Who did uh, the and the composer from Lost also did Mission Impossible Three music? Is that what you were telling me before? Uh, yeah, Michael Gia, Giacani. Yeah. Giacano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, amazing you can trace the Mission Impossible. <laughs> this is another thing about this whole thing that you just talked about a lot, like hiring just people that. I don't, I, I, it sounds too trite to say the people that are hot right now, mm-hmm. but like the pop, whatever sort of popular Tom Cruise has sort of been able to, you know, latch into in a timely enough manner where it makes sense. Like it never feels when these films come out, they don't feel dated. Like, but for instance, if you watch Mission Impossible one, two, one or two, well, now they do. But yeah. like at the time, like John Woo was. Was the, was the soup du jour, and yeah. so they wanted to sort of make that sort of thing. So dove like soup, dove soup. Yeah, um, and it feels like something Shredder would eat. Uh, the it's just I don't know. It's it's an interesting way to make a film franchise, and I don't know if there's anything particularly like it. No, and the other thing to remember as well. Okay, so I, this is the number I like to think about: is that Tom Cruise has been an actor, you know, on the screen for thirty-seven years. Jesus 20, Christ, twenty-two of those years have been. As Ethan Hunt. Yeah. So 22 years he's played this character. And we've seen him go from young, hotshot Ethan Hunt, you 
know, like newest newest member of the, oh no, he wasn't the newest member, but like established member of the IMF who's proved that he has got what it takes. Yep. Uh to now where he's like the old guard. He he pretty much is the does any I mean Literally, are there any other teams in the IMF at this point? No, no. This, I think they're all. I think they're all just to him. <laughs> or, do, or if they do go to like annual meetings, they're like you know, and like and like uh, the secretary gets up and says, "Well, I just want to let you guys know about what Ethan Hunt did last week." And every other member of the IMF is like, "Oh, do we got to do this yeah. shit every single time?" I get it. Ethan Hunt did this thing, but did you hear about my? Impossible mission? No, you didn't, because we're spies and you're not supposed to hear about it. So that makes Ethan Hunt the worst, the worst spy. <laughs> did you hear about what Ethan Hunt did in Paris? I yes. did, because it was in the news. Yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Dipshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're the worst secretary. You're the worst uh, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> All right, but but regardless of that, Christopher McQuarrie is the first returning director yes. of the Mission uh, of a Mission Impossible movie. And I dug Rogue Nation. I, I, Rogue? I, 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 yeah, whatever you're calling it. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. I should go back and listen to it because I'm sure I did have problems with it. But like, I, I have as of now, walking into this Mission Impossible, I was like, I remember liking the last Mission Impossible. Whether or not that was <laughs> but true, do you remember the last Mission Impossible. I remember scenes from the last <laughs> yeah. Mission Impossible, but um, I don't remember specific plot. I remember the the bad guy. Um, well, you have head. to because he's in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Solomon Lane. Solomon Lane. Lane. Who sounds like a Batman villain. With all your good intentions. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> so here's the, my problem. So again, I really liked three. I really like one. The problem that I, I and I, I sort of mildly enjoyed four and five. My, my issue with four and five is four and five felt like was when they were like, okay, this is a franchise now. Let's make franchise movies. And I felt the thing about four and five that I, I believe I said during those podcasts is they didn't feel like movies to me. They felt like action set pieces that were kind of loosely connected by a movie. So here's the thing. Mm. This series is now also Mm. doing what Fast and the Furious did. Yeah. And what Fast and Furious did was start off as one thing, see that a certain aspect of that thing was more popular than the thing that the films were actually really grounded in, and slowly pushed itself towards the thing that seems to be the moneymaker for it. What is that thing? The thing for, well, the thing for... um, For Mission Impossible? For Mission Impossible is, honestly, Tom Cruise stunts. Yeah. That's the reason people are kind of going th- to I this. I think that's what they're selling these days. That's what they're selling at least. Yeah. Hell, I got a I got a, a movie bill, aka a playbill, like a pamphlet when I walked into the theater. Mm. They handed me like a, a piece of literature as if this was on Broadway. Right. But it was all about like stunts and Tom Cruise and how he does it and da 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 and I'm like cool. I would love to see the Mission Impossible Broadway uh, adaptation. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, you know you'd have the scene with the wires. I mean, that's just the classic. That's the easiest one. I think that, you know, like the people that did the Spider-Man uh, nope. Broadway, they would have to come in to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so that's the starting point we're at right now. I kind of feel like they've kind of itched into um, sit pieces that are loosely connected. I mean, and in case in point is you can't really remember what happened in Rogue Nation yep. or in Gustu Protocol, right? <laughs> Why know. are you doing this? I'm just doing it. Um, okay. Um, and, and and this to me is a big problem because basically the entire premise of Fallout is that you should have remembered all of that. 
right? Like, like you walk into Ghost, uh, into into Fallout, and there's suddenly characters who are like, "Hey, don't you remember this thing that we did?" Or, or you know, like, "Oh, this is the guy you should be worried about." And it was like, "Oh, this is all stuff I should have been paying attention to." But here's the in here- Rogue Nation, even though I feel like those movies didn't really care about that. I will say that this film does do a good job. It's not it's not an easy thing to follow, but if you really listen hard, it does a good job of. In the first 15 to 20 minutes of the film, giving you all that info dump and then never really referencing it ever again. Oh, man, I would disagree with that. Because I think I, like, there were moments in the middle of the movie where they were like talking about things that had happened. And I was like, no, oh, but that was, all, that was all stuff in this film. Because he watches, obviously, the thing that self-destructs. And it gives like the really long, arduous backstory about, um, about the syndicate. Mm-hmm. And then now they're called the Apostles. Yeah. And Solomon Lane was the bad guy from before. And now da 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 I got to be honest with you. When Solomon Lane appears in the middle of the movie, I was like, is that the bad guy from the last one? <laughs> well, that's, that's the <laughs> casting issue, I think, too. <laughs> But the the all of the stuff, like for instance, all the the plutonium stuff, and like the, the even the th- stuff when they're in the in the um in the trailer when um she's like uh, you know his, his team would have died, and she's like yeah that's the job like that happens in, in this yeah, movie yeah. no no I get that that was the worst scene in this movie the first like the opening scene yeah. of them doing it was like it felt like C unit shit yeah it's pretty I, I gotta admit okay all right well, I guess we're getting to first thoughts yeah I gotta admit. First half of this movie, I was like, this is rough, dude. I don't know what. Because the reviews for this movie are like, best action movie since Fury Road. And what that conjures in my yep. mind, because the thing about Fury Road was like action from the beginning to the end of the yep. movie that tells a story. You know, that's that's the remarkable transcendent thing yes. about Fury Road. Um, and, and this movie starts off slow, and it starts off confusing, and then it has lines of dialogue. Boy, this this monologue from um, uh, Alec Baldwin to Tom Cruise about you you believe that because you saved one person and you and you were you know not to sacrifice the good, greater good is your greatest weakness. I'm telling you the reason I left the CIA is because I believe that is your greatest strength. Yeah, and I was like, oh boy, we are in for some shit in this movie. Hey, listen, anytime two grown men are talking alone in an airfield next to a fueled up fucking jet, and then talking about the main character's psychological problems as though it was the theme of the movie we're about to watch, yeah. I'm like, oh boy, this yeah. is gonna be rough. Um, but I will. So, so, and, and I will admit through through the middle of this movie where they were like, no, he's the double agent. No, he's the double agent. No, he's actually the double agent. And this person wanted this thing, and we're gonna get it from this person and this is going to change hands and yada 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 i was like i don't know i don't really know what's happening here i mean okay i will get into spoilers but but i but the the thing that you talked about at the beginning which is that you know like selling this on the idea that this is tom cruise is going to dance for you (laughs) tom cruise is going to like break some bones for you I was like, yeah, I'm on board for that. I want to see Tom Cruise dance for me. I mean, I paid $25 to see this movie. I want to see some bones broken. You're welcome, Earth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, so the this is arguably, um, while it is not my favorite Mission Impossible movie, it is the one that does spectacle the best. And the reason it does spectacle the best is there is a throwback quality to this, which is the, a, a real major... Resp- I, I feel like... Uh, either consciously or unconsciously, a major response to the CGI-laden action film Mm -hmm. mold where we don't really feel like people are necessarily in danger. Sure. And, and, And what this film does is say, no, hey... Everybody's in danger making this movie. See how risky this was, and and that is an illusion. 
you know, like it is not, you know, like I, I, I think the, the PR marketing of selling Tom Cruise being in danger all the time is part of the marketing. Uh-huh. Like, it's like, smart. It is very smart. Um, but it does make you sit up at attention during the action set pieces of this movie. It does suffer from the kind of action set pieces are more important than actual things. But what I like about this movie is I feel like they, unlike the previous, uh, unlike Rogue Nation, Rogue Nation, and Ghost Protocol, uh, I feel like they actually do care about this story. The story is confusing, but I feel like they care. And there is actually a clear line in this film to what this film is about. Unfortunately, Alec Baldwin spells it out at the very beginning of the movie. Like, right. you're willing to save one person instead of, you know, um, instead of saving millions. Uh, you're, you're, you're willing to, like, look at the real in front of you instead of the abstract beyond that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really cool thing. It's not my favorite of them. I wouldn't say it's as great as Fury Road, but it's like... But I liked it. I enjoyed myself. I um the Fury Road thing pisses me off. I wish I never. I, I feel like it was like one reviewer who said that. And no, like, no, no, no. Ah. It's it's you could just Google it and it's and it's like or someone latched onto it and yeah. it became a bit of the narrative. And I'm sure the PR department for or the advertising department for Fallout wanted that hardcore. But it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. And I was talking to I was at uh, dinner with some friends last night, and I was talking about. Um, films that have, um, you know, that we, we, we say, oh, this film is the best one since this, or it's like this, or like, you know, whatever. I don't think, I don't think calling it, I don't think calling out the similarities to Mad Max Fury Road is necessarily wrong, but I think it does a disservice to what movies you're, what, what you're actually referencing as important in films. For instance, mm-hmm. You could break down 80 to 90% of uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, and it's a chase scene. Mm-hmm. Probably about 80% of that film is running or moving from one spot to another. Hey, man, Tom Cruise has got to run. And I know. <laughs> and in that regard, mm-hmm. it does a similar thing to Mad Max. All the action is moving, and it's and it's like, it's a chase. But, but like, so I can see where someone could be like, oh, yeah, it's like that if you're not, if you're not sort of thinking about it really hard or like what actually is important in the thing the, the reason why mad max works so fucking well is not only it's not just because it's a giant chase scene and that makes it the best action stuff it's because it's the synergy of everything and every action piece or or event that happens actually has not only a, a narrative thread but it also pulls at the underlying thing of what the film is trying to say where this film doesn't do that. This is just nonstop action for nonstop action's sake, which again is fine. But like this film, like nothing in Mad Max ever felt disjointed, even when there was a quiet moment or a slight moment of levity, etc. But this this movie, uh, Fallout, was very like here's an action piece, and then here's a high drama part, and then here's something that's funny. Should we be laughing at this? I don't. Okay, it's odd. Now it's going to be like a weird sitcom moment, but now it's back to action. You're and talking it, about Simon Pig coming in, right? Like whenever um, Simon Pig comes in. But but Tom Cruise has some Simon Pig esque lines in this too. Like and when he's talking to Simon Pig. But like it, there's there's moments of like when it's a serious moment, and then something goes wrong. I'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll burn that bridge when I come to it. Like it's just ugh. so so the the tonality of what this set up. I was just very I didn't really like that it was a Fury Road thing because I think that's latching on to the wrong similarities. Yeah. So when I saw it, I had a little bit of a hype train mm-hmm. in my head, and and it did spoil it 
a little for me. It does do some fun stuff, which we'll get into. I think we should start talking about spoilers soon after I read IMDb. Oh, yeah. Well, I, do we need to say what Mission Impossible is about? No, but listen. I it's think in the that, title, I think this, this is so funny because at this point, this is like, this is the sixth one. They don't even, we don't even need to write anything. Yeah. It says, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team, along with some familiar allies, race against time after a mission gone wrong. <laughs> That's like a synopsis for the entire series. Yes, that's right. literally it. Yeah. Um, I thought the plot, like, I'm not talking about the film's plot. I'm talking about the bad guy's plot mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Okay. Uh, it, it. I don't know if it's told the most effective way, <laughs> yeah. but the way it actually ties together with, you know, some history with the series and a bunch of, like, I feel like it could have been shown to us better. Yeah. But once I'd figured it out, I was like... And there was a sort of a last thing we'll get into near the end of this podcast, but with uh, you know, with other characters coming back and sort of like thing you heard about in the beginning of the movie tying back to the end in a very important weird way, in a way that Solomon Lane just wants to punish Ethan Hunt. Yeah. To the point where you know we've all seen the trailers. It's about you know uh, uranium and nuclear bombs and stuff. Uh, Solomon decides at the end wherever the last set piece takes place is like, nope, this is where I'm. This is it. He's like, as long as I get Hunt and we we mm-hmm. see him do this thing, like I'm done. Yeah. And I was like. Okay, Machiavellian nightmare guy. I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I dug, I dug that. Um, the the what I didn't dig mm-hmm. was the two or three times in the film, and it works once, and I don't think it works the other times. It starts to show you uh, an action scene or a moment or something that like should be coming naturally in the progression of the story, and then it rewinds back to like Ethan thinking about it. I thought I remember that once in the in the in the movie. It happens once with the when they're with trying the, to break out Solomon Lane. Yeah, but it also happens. It's a little bit of a different thing, and they use it actually as a narrative piece. The one I liked is in the very beginning when they get like the hacker guy who wrote a manifesto or something, yeah, yeah. and they convince him through trickery that the that's bombs had gone off. That's slightly different. Though, it is one slightly is, different. Well, one's an imagination thing. I guess you're right. And one's a, it, it, a, a misdirection by the team. It hit the same Venn diagram thing. I gotta admit though, that first one, I was like. That's not Wolf Blitzer. That's a dude in a mask. Like as soon as it came on, and I was like, "They're not giving away the codes or anything like that." I, I just I knew what was happening right away. So I did, and then I didn't. And I was what I liked about that moment was. By the way, we are we jumped into spoilers. Sorry, I just realized I like gave away. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, not real. It's in the first twenty. It's hard to talk about. <laughs> Hard cut. We are in spoilers right now. There we now. go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to go into this thing, especially with that. But like, there's, there's this thing where I was in the moment and I was like, oh man, does this movie have the balls to like actually have Rome and all these other places like just get nuked? And that's what. Yeah. And because the title and like, I was like, oh man, Fallout. Like, I, I w- th- that's intense, and that changes the world stage and whatever. And I was like, that's a ballsy fucking move. And then I was like, wait a minute, is this going to be? And I was like, I don't know. And I, I flip-flopped back and forth. And then, of course, because it's a Mission Impossible movie, it ends up being a guy <laughs> in a mask. Here's the deal. Can I just say something about the masks? Yeah. Every character since 2 yeah. has been like, these masks are bullshit. Why do you even bother doing this? When the solution that works nine times out of ten in these movies is the fucking masks. Yeah. So – 
Why is every? I hate that everyone's like, oh, it's so old school. Like I'm just like everyone's so negative in the in the in the spy community about these masks. But like these masks are also magic, right? Like, oh, a hundred percent tech these, magic. These are these are like magic masks. Wizard did it. Yeah. Um. The the you know the other film that actually did what you were talking about, which is that act, you know like the threat of the nuclear bomb going off actually happens. Do you remember the Sum of All Fears? Yeah. The Jack Ryan film with Ben Affleck as Jack Ryan. Yep. That was one of the. That's the. That's the only film, like, I, not a great movie, but it's the only one I can think of where, like, the bomb actually goes off and they have to deal with the repercussions. Right. I agree. It would have been cool if, like, um, they would have had to deal with the repercussions of the fallout of that. But as soon as, like, they're in the room and, like, and, like, and Wolf Blitzer was on television and he's phoning to, like, I was like, behind this wall is Simon Pig in a mask. That's so funny. I didn't even, I didn't really pick it up. Uh, uh, it, the the second time that they did it with Simon Pig in a mask, I was kind of like, oh, I didn't I didn't spot that one. That one I did spot. Oh, there's, really? there's a double. There's a there's a switcheroo. Yeah, there's and a lot of switcheroos. But it's in when this. Henry Cavill kind of starts revealing his master plan to like a character, and I was like, and I didn't I didn't know. I was like, oh yeah, Simon Pig's in the mask. Um, so there's an interesting thing. I I think I agree. So let's go back to this Fury Road thing. I think uh, you're right. The Fury Road is the wrong analogy. Uh, to me, the bitter analogy. That is reductive, which is what comparing it to another movie does. Sure, is the Dark Knight. It feels very Dark Knight, very Skyfall, which is that it's taking the 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 sit up of one film and then exploring it in much further detail. Yeah, but without the the differences, there's a couple of things, and I sort of want to preference this difference first. I think Christopher McQuarrie does an excellent job here. I think he really he directs this well. And what I think is great about this is it feels it still feels like a writer's movie. Remember, Crystal McQuarrie is a writer first mm -hmm. and foremost who only started directing um, a, a, a while ago. You know, he's most famous for his screenplay for The Usual Suspects, which is incredible yep. screenplay. Uh, and then he was he's kind of been. Uh, punching up Tom Cruise's scripts for the last ten years now, like he punched up uh, um, Age of Tomorrow, uh, and then you know, you know, and then Tom Cruise rewarded him by like giving him Jack Reacher to direct. Mm -hmm. um, I think what he does here is he maintains his focus on being a writer first and foremost, and I feel like the film, despite being silly is still well written. And what I like about it, you know, well written before it's well directed. And it's still very well directed. Um, it feels like the kind of Christopher Nolan kind of um, big expanse, you know, like city hopping, uh, you know, nation hopping kind of quality to it. Right. Um, and I and I feel like like the sit pieces uh, like uh, the Paris Escape have that sort of Nolan esque elaborate, really tightly contained structure. Mm -hmm. And I I think they're actually done really well. Like I what I love about that sit piece is seeing Ethan Hunt kind of like pull up to the the location. We've seen the location a couple of times now. He walks out, he sits up a camera, we get the geography of the space, and then the action set piece kind of happens. And then it's got this amazing like car chase sequence that feels like it's out of the French connection. Yep. So I think it's all really, really well handled. I think the story is a little silly. And the, and the reason I think it's silly, and silly is the wrong word, but the reason it, <laughs> It's pretty silly. It's pretty silly. But But you know what it is? Is that in a Christopher Nolan film, uh, Christopher Nolan is really committed to the ideological perspective of the villain. Like he's re like in in The Dark Knight, he's really committed to showing what the Joker is about. Sure. And in The Dark Knight Rises, he's really committed to what Bane is about. What a beautiful yeah. voice. You know what I mean? And in this one, Solomon Kane, I'm still like, 
you know, you can watch this movie and not really know what they're about. You know, like they're kind of just this boogeyman, and it's more about Ethan Hunt. I got I, it. I though. think I I get it, but it's not like it's not like the way Nolan does it. Now I'm not. That's a that's a difficult comparison as well. But I think it it that's what the film evokes to me, and I think it. It does it, you know, a lot of films want to aspire to what The Dark Knight is, and this is one that does, and does it pretty well. The 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 Solomon Lane's sort of thing, the, the hard part about this is a lot of that was in four, or, or five, and, and, sorry, and five. Four, in five, it, it didn't really matter. But yeah, in this one, the, there's a couple lines, and you see a little bit of emotion on his face when he's like, you're the old guard, you're the reason why all these bad things start happening. Like, he, yeah. he's, a, he's an idealist, and Henry Cavill doesn't quite sell it as well as uh, the actor who plays uh, Solomon Lane. But the film doesn't quite ever convince you or try to convince you that that is a worthwhile position, right? Like, like whereas in in the Joker, you just kind of go, maybe that kind of makes and sense. even Thanos, like they yeah. give enough time to Thanos to be like, you kind of see a kind of weird twisted logic in yeah, what he's I doing. Kinda, I kind of get, what, I, I don't agree with it, but I get what you're doing. Yeah, but yeah. Then, then they're like terrorists or children who try to live through fear, or like whatever. Like, there's a couple of good monologues that I get what you're saying. They don't stick as well as other yeah. solid. And you know what? From an ideological point of view, that really fucking like just being a brown man. Sure. <laughs> It was, it was like like the 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 entire uh, ideological perspective of the bad guys is for you know in order for a rebirth we must endure great suffering or sure like that and I was like but the great suffering is going to happen in Kashmir like not in the countries you live in not in the countries that like all these characters live in they're going to happen like yeah. where brown people you live. fucking drop smallpox off in a in like in a you know in a tiny in the poorest village yeah I was like oh okay yeah I get and this is you know what I mean whereas whereas Bane, for example, fucks the city up. It was like, no, we're going to take control of the city because Gotham is the place. Gotham's reckoning is where this must happen. Yeah, and that is that ideological divide that like separates a film. It's a very like, good point. You know, like from this to that. It's a very good point. Um, I think I want to go back a little bit to what you said about um, it's a very well written and directed film. Yeah, here's a okay. This is going to feel weird to me because it the film itself. Felt slightly confusing and slightly disjointed, but I think it actually comes from someone who is both a strong writer and someone who is a strong director that might not be entirely the, – the, the binding of which I think might not be the strongest part. And by what I mean by that is this movie plays out like someone who knows how to tell a really good story but is so excited about the story they're telling with all of these cool people and things and whatnot, it doesn't quite bother. It 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 tells it to you as if you've heard the story before. Like right, it, yeah, it leaves yeah. out it, like just tiny things or, or not even not even facts. Yeah. It'll give you the facts, but it won't give you the thought process of why a character wanted that fact or why that fact was even stated. Yeah. So like there's this weird sinew sort of middle ground between and I think I think it actually comes from uh, and I think I've seen it a lot when it's a writer director that is not a a hundred percent not Christopher Nolan basically yeah. like there there I think you as a creator because I I get like this um, you get so excited about things you kind of forget that sometimes people that haven't been engrossed in it for fucking three years or whatever might not get the minutia that you're breezing over yeah um, now again that's not the point of a Mission Impossible movie I, again I go back to the, yeah. the Fast and the Furious reference they're in this they're leaning into what they're selling and it. Knows what it is, and that's great. But yeah. if we're going to look at it from a full 
cinematic, like just a movie sort of on its own kind of thing. Yeah. We uh, that's a problem I had with it. One question I have for you, like, so the film opens with this kind of Russian, you know, like spy exchange that doesn't go well. <laughs> so yada, yada, bad. Yada. That sits into you know sits the wheels into motion of. Uh, <laughs> they literally forget to grab the. It reminds me a lot of Justice League where like they leave mother the mother box in the parking lot. It's so fucking funny. Yeah, they I mean, but this one's a little bit more pliable. Like they were shooting and they ran off and they, you know, it's it's not as bad, but it is yeah, it's bad. They're trained professionals. One of them should have stayed with the plutonium. The plutonium is the thing you want. But that's Ethan Hunt's whole psychological problem, yo. He's willing to jump in and save one dude. Instead of like saving the world by shooting him and not having Simon Pegg stay back or throwing the, the plutonium in the car, he knew Luther was wearing a wearing a vest, oh, which is something God. he would never do. I was like, you guys can't play this game with Ethan Hunt where you'd like shoot him, you know, like because Ethan Hunt doesn't wear a vest. At any rate, oh. so this is a question I have, though, okay. and I, it's like a real fundamental question. <laughs> The first, you know, there's this amazing sit piece at the beginning. It's the, it's the, you know, uh, the sit piece to kind of initiate the thing. And and what's great about this film is the sit pieces get bigger and bigger and bigger yes. until they reach a crescendo. That's something that I feel like the last two movies haven't done very well. Um, but they basically decide to halo jump. Is that the phrase? Yep. Halo jump. What yep. does halo mean in this it, term? It, uh, it's a uh, high altitude, low oxygen. Right. Okay. Okay. Cool. They halo jump into Paris, right? Oh, how did I know that? Yeah. I, mean, probably, I don't know. <laughs> video games. Yeah. Video games. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> so they 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 halo jump into Paris and then like walk into this party and I'm like, and I was like, hey guy, it just seems like there are thousands of people at this party. Couldn't you just like go to the party? Like, what what is the point of this halo jump? You know, like, yeah. I, I, I mean, is that that was the that was like that that thing about the first half where I was like I don't understand what's happening. It was like the halo jump. I was like, why are we halo jumping into this thing? It seems like you're taking the most complicated and dangerous way to go to a party. I think here's the deal. <laughs> this is what I, I can tell you the the narrative reason why it happened, yeah. and then I'll tell you why I think it actually from a filmmaker's perspective. I mean, I, I can tell you we know why it happened from a filmmaker's perspective. What, which is which is like it's a cool scene, sure, right? But like, why does it happen from a narrative? Because they were not in the right part of the world and mm -hmm. they needed to get there as fast as they could and the fastest way was to fly this jet and jump out to get there because the party was already like going on. I'm just going to say this though, for the extra 40 minutes it would take to land the plane and get off and go to the location, is that 40 minutes worth the halo jump? The danger of the halo yes, jump? Yes, because because there was only the, the, the um, John Lane or okay. whatever the, the the mystery character who was, uh, maybe it was Ethan and maybe it was Henry Cavill and maybe it was whoever the mm -hmm. fuck only had a specific window of time where they were going to meet the White Widow. Like mm -hmm. it wasn't just a whole party. It was like they have this meeting for ten minutes, and if you're not if they're not there, then it's not happening. I'm just, I, I, it, but it, it is a cool scene. I like the scene. I like the halo jump. I like the sort of the the parameters that it sits up from a character point of view. But it, but like it just feels like the whole point was to get these guys into a party. Which thousands of people are getting into. It doesn't feel like a party you need to sneak in. Also, uh, surely, I mean, if the does the does the the impossible mission force not have people in Paris? I know it's ridiculous and it's not silly to pick it apart, but I just couldn't see. I, I could understand if like the, if Lark was on a plane and the only way to get on the plane was to halo jump into that plane because it was impossible. You you are just. It sounds to me here like you are just not down with the friction. I'm not down with the friction. I uh, need, I need some lubricant. We both know you need it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all fall up again. I don't know the lyrics. I just think look, you're you're not again. They 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 minor dialogue 
hand wave away the yeah. reason they're doing the Halo jump. Um, I was like, maybe the reason you guys are the impossible mission force is because you make bad decisions. I mean, well, they make no. There's there's, there's only so much of a plan. They make like thirty percent of a plan every time, and then it's improvised. And I get that's the joke. Yeah, um, and that's what they're good at. Um, I, that was the only one. That, that was the only scene like that, though. Whereas I felt like the other. Uh, impossible missions were kind of set up like, hey, this is the only chance we have to get this. I know, I know they kind of hand wave it away, yeah. But it's but it seems like a pretty absurd length to go to, like crashing cars in Paris because there's this one person in a car that is moving that you have to get to. That makes logical sense to me. Jumping out of a plane into a thunderstorm to get to a party that you could just walk into seems like a little bit of a stretch. The thunderstorm <laughs> part was silly, and the oxygen and like whatever. And then they played it for a joke, and I was like, okay. I also um, like that they're using like Henry Cavill. I haven't seen The Man from Uncle, but I was like, oh, we're getting so close to an Archer movie with Henry Cavill. I, I would kill so, for an Archer movie with Henry Cavill. We're so close to this right now. <laughs> also, and I feel like I probably should have said this in the beginning, but I think I've said it before. I was 100% on board with this film just because they made. <laughs> They, they they made uh, Henry Cavill keep his mustache for Justice League. What's hilarious is the mustache in, in Mission Impossible is like a really... It's not like a bad... No, it's a really bad mustache. It's like... it's. I was like, why does this character ha have this? And I think the thing is here is that, you know, like in every Mission Impossible thing, they kind of reach back into this like Hitchcockian yeah. uh, thing, which is that the the villain is in some way a mirror of, the, mm -hmm. of, of Ethan in some way. But... Uh, in this case, he's like a real ugly villain, even though like Henry Cavill's like a really handsome dude. He's dresses in bad suits. He's like, and he then spoiler alert, he gets deformed in the last like ten minutes of the that's, film. That's that that villain hero antithesis. and I'm like, but he's and then he again double quick spoiler. He's he did. He doesn't seem like a mastermind. He seems like a henchman, right? Like a little bit. He feels very, like, henchman-ish. Well, and also, I don't know, I was just on board with Henry Cavill from the beginning, and I, the, the one dis moment of disappointment I had with Henry Cavill was in the trailer, which we've all seen a million, well, you haven't, because you don't watch trailers. But, I watched it after the movie. Uh, like, it was in front of every film, I feel like, for a year. Right. And with that, with the Imagine Dragons song, with the down da down da down down da down down there's a moment, like, when Henry Cavill's in the bathroom, and he takes off his jacket, and he fucking squares up his fists, and it, it sounds like... like cocking his fists? It sounds like there's, like, a real, like, a... Like noise, and so when that happened in the actual movie, I felt a tinge of disappointment <laughs> that that sound effect was not in the actual film. It wouldn't have made sense. I don't think it would have been a good call, but it made something. It made it. It was missing something, and I'm like, that's because this fucking team for a year ployed me and said Henry Cavill's biceps make fucking rifle chambering sound effects, <laughs> and now I'm not getting it, and I am upset. I I did. I want to point out a couple of like little details that I think point to the, like the the sharp directing of this film. Uh, one is uh, the mo I, I think the 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 Paris chase sequence yep. on uh, on wheels and then uh, on wheels in a car and then on two wheels. You're not wrong. No, no, there are two. Yeah, there there are six wheels at least. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that is really beautifully contained and directed and feels dangerous and and has that sort of um french connection kind of like it just feels like they could spiral out of control at any second old school car chase there's a real throwback quality to to the entire sort of visual aesthetic of 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 destruction in this film you know you could argue that that most modern blockbusters have gotten into this like 
the aesthetics of destruction. Mm -hmm. And this has got the aesthetics of destruction, but like really played for realism, really played for weight. And there's this one scene where I think Rebecca Ferguson, Ilsa Faust, so good, ridiculous name, but I, but I love her. She's amazing. In this. Um, it goes through a motorbike. Is in her motorbike and goes through like a a, a tunnel, a tunnel where there are pillows on either side, yep. and you got this really nice sort of. Yeah, and it was just like a, 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 I was like, oh, I really like that the film kind of quiets down and li- allows you to have this like little moment of sound design mm-hmm. that plays that really, really smartly. Obviously, the final helicopter sequence again absurd. You know, Ethan Hunt is like flying a helicopter though he's never fl- flown a helicopter. Eh, yada yada. I don't care. Um, but I love, and this was shot in New Zealand by the way, so it was nice to see New Zealand on screen doubling for this place where brown people are going to die. Um, but I like. <laughs> Uh, I, I love the the sort of mechanics of that whole sequence, and it does that thing that I talked about in Ant Man versus the Wasp as well, which is that he is really good at concurrent action. Yes. So lots of action beats happening at exactly the same time that are all escalating and playing off each other really, really, really well. Um, I think that's sort of an extraordinary. Uh, it's an extraordinarily difficult talent, and it requires patience and timing mm-hmm. and like an ability to like see the little details. And you know, he shows it here in spades in this film. Uh, Chris McQuarrie, I think, really does that. He kind of he for people who there are a lot of like action movie directors, yeah. and you wouldn't think Christopher McQuarrie is in that list. No, he is, but he is now. Yeah, you know, and he should be, rightly so. Yeah, it's uh, it it was overall. I guess we'll get into kind of final thoughts. I I dug it. I've dug the series for the most part enough. Yeah. Uh, this felt like a natural conclusion. The way the film ends, and again, oh, the the the, the clever thing I thought was um, uh, sort of tying it back to what I said before. The plot, Solomon's plot, and he releases smallpox in Kashmir. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I mean, I guess, yeah. uh, like, whatever, like, and then it turns out that they, the reason he, the literal reason why this fucking evil psychopath did that was so a team of specific, like, doctors who would come for, like, a relief effort would show up there, and that is where Ethan's ex-wife works. So she gets there, and not only that, the specific part in Kashmir would be a perfect place for a nuclear bomb to be exploded because uh, three different natural river sources to uh, China, Russia, and uh, India, it would all it would, the fallout would destroy natural, I mean, yeah. you wouldn't be able to drink water there. So it would like be the ultimate in like really fucking up that half of the planet. Yeah. So he did on the, ma- on the, on the macro level, the most effective terrorist thing he could do. And on the micro level, <laughs> he did, he did a horrible thing just to do one specific extra horrible thing to a person he hates yeah and so i i liked that that I, that's something i like about a lot of these films is they they do while the while the villains uh overarching ideology is not well explained or at least well sort of like reasoned yeah. or, uh, i don't know what the word is just, i think it's not it's not the, the movie's not focused on it. yeah it's not focused the focus isn't there um the actual like the blueprint of all the evil plans is really fun and good. Yeah, and, that's what they should do. And yeah. Um, I think Tom Cruise does a great job being Tom Cruise. I think mm-hmm. uh, I really want to see Rebecca Ferguson in more stuff. Simon Pegg is obviously a delight. Um, Angela Bassett uh, and, and Alec Baldwin do exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and it it's a fun, It's it feels like a good summer movie. And I dug, I dug it. Even though you know, I I think don't go in expecting another Fury Road because it no. it is not that. It is not that. Shahir, uh, I there's a lot of this I really enjoyed as an experience. Um, I, I think. Uh, 
as far as if we're one way to kind of look at the frame this is like how does it rank in the spectrum of of uh mission possible films and in that way i still think uh three is a better movie i still prefer one because i think you know i really like what one did and how original it was um this is the best of this would come after that so this is the best of the last three movies four five and six i think the six is the best one Mm -hmm. um I I also there was like a little uh, uh, throwaway connection that is not important, but I thought it was kind of cool, which was that the the white uh, what is her name white the, widow the white widow is actually the daughter of Max from the first movie. Yep, and I love that 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 means that the kiss that they have, which is like comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. mirrors the kiss that that Tom Cruise had with um, Vanessa Redgrave yeah. in the first movie. It's and- it's like a nice little touch. Completely irrelevant to the film, unimportant. Shouldn't no one should care about that? I just liked the first film, so I liked that that was there. I didn't know that watching the movie. I didn't realize. I didn't make that connection. It was right. only afterwards that I made that connection. Um, Patrick Williams, uh, who's a YouTuber, uh, uh, video essayist, uh, he has a lot of fun with uh, Mission Impossible. He did this interesting thing about who the hell is Ethan Hunt, <laughs> and and he you know basically asked this question like like what does Ethan Hunt want? How does he work? What is what is what is his character development in all of these movies? And I think um, for the most part, uh, I agree with Williams' assessment, which is that Ethan Hunt is basically just a cipher for Tom Cruise. It's not really a, a strong character. It's just kind of who Tom. It's it's the opportunity to play basically allow Tom Cruise to play a version of himself at that particular moment. So sure. In Mission Impossible One, he's young hotshot. You know, yeah, Mission Impossible Two, he's like action movie star god kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, I think the so I think if you view it under that prism where it's like he's just kind of Tom Cruise. I mean that's uh, most of his movies at yeah, this point. You know, then then that's fine. It means that the film isn't like as invested in character as I would hope and 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 you know, like um it feels kind of th- that the character motivation is perfunctory. But this movie, unlike the last two, for example, uh, and not as well as the third one, has a real clear line about what Ethan Hunt is about. He is the good guy who's willing to save his friends at no matter what. And that's what this film is about. Uh, I wish Ethan Hunt would get over his ex-wife at this point. It's been three movies where he's like, I'm like... Uh, I think at this point he is. And if they're going to make more, I think Tom Cruise said if people will bankroll him, he'll still make them. Oh, if, who's, um, who's not going to bankroll Tom Cruise yeah. at this point? So uh, <laughs> I think I, I think that plot line is finished. Like yeah. they, they, they wrap up that story finally yeah. in a nice little bow. But... Um, uh, uh, there, there was a review that uh, that basically mentioned that the the amazing thing about Tom uh, about this film uh, it was by Bill Jubery for the Village Voice said is that this film makes you believe in movie stars again, and and I think I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that I, mm. I think the age of the movie star is changing. Yeah. But the one thing that this film did remind me of is Buster Keaton, and the reason why we you know like we would marvel at Buster Keaton movies is that sort of physical ball- balletic quality that sure. he had. And here the 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 thing that's interesting is this this willingness. It, it, Tom Cruise shares this with Jackie Chan, for example. Is this willingness to put himself at risk, to put himself in danger? That is the quality that he brings to the movie, and I think that's a pretty special quality. I worry about the guy. Like I'm like I'm. I don't I, worry about him too much. I worry that like that 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 the more we pump into this. PR belief, this sort of audience expectation of Tom Cruise doing dangerous things, the more he feeds us that, the the riskier it'll become. Well, of course, he's only getting older. But, it, but, the, but the other side is the risk is an illusion. 
Uh, so, you know, like, just be aware that it's like, there is an entire machinery behind this that is designed to, like, kind of make sure that that's what we know about. You know, like, we know that Tom Cruise broke his foot in, in a jump sequence. We know that, you know, like, he puts, he did the, he actually did the halo jump. You know, they, they make sure we know that. Sure. Um, that said, I, I still enjoyed what the film was. I don't think it's as good as 301, but, but it does some interesting things. I, I would be curious, I think, in another discussion to like um, open up something which is looking comparatively like why does this franchise endure where um, other franchises seem to fizzle out? Like for the Triple X, you know, Triple X, for example, for Jason Bourne, I, um, you I, know, I think that would be an interesting discussion. I think we kind of hit that though too. I, I honestly think it's Fast and the Furious. It's the it's it's leaning into the the, str- the strength in which your audience has latched onto. Right. And in this case, it's Tom Cruise and stunts and 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 a funny and, and, and almost like a weird like spy family. Yeah. It's it's interesting how much. You look at sort of films, and like it went from street racing and Fast and the Furious to yeah. like action movie family, like, yeah. and and no character in Fast and the Furious, for instance, is well rounded. Mm. Like they're all like sort of caricatures of things. Like Vin Diesel, Dom plays Vin Diesel. Yeah. Like uh, Ludacris plays Ludacris. Like, yeah. and and that's the sort of thing. Like Simon Pegg here plays is if, if Simon Pegg was a spy, this is what Simon Pegg would be. Yeah. Uh, and same thing with Tom Cruise. So I think there is. There's something for – it leaned into – it's a fun, familial-based spy yeah. movie. And instead of trying to make it like – instead of focusing on the actual spy plot, they, yeah. focus, they focus on the spy family. And I think that's why it's successful and, and why it has outlived these other ones that, for instance, the Bourne movies, like there's just as much complexity and just as much like intrigue, I'll say, in, in the Jason Bourne franchise – but no one cares because the characters aren't grounded enough for you to want to experience what they're doing next. I'm I'm sort of half uh, half on board with that because I think the family gets swapped out a lot, except for Simon Pig and uh, Luther. Uh, it's only the last couple of films where the kind of family has been established, and I think that's what this particular film is about. And I think that's where they're going to go. I think uh, that's what's happening. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to how to where to move on from this film, like where the next step is. But you know, who knows? Uh, I, Paul Thomas Anderson did a really interesting uh, podcast uh, conversation. I think it was on The Ringer, where because you know he worked obviously exclusively with uh, Tom Cruise on Magnolia. Yep. And you know the thing we're into right now is Tom Cruise is fifty six years old. Uh, he still looks like he's forty years old. He, he looks prob- be- he, he looks better than than either of us. He should probably start aging backwards. You should uh, think about that. The curious case of Benjamin Cruz. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson basically said, "Look, I would," and this is, I guess, this is his thing. I think Tom Cruise is an exceptional actor. I think I don't, you know, like I, I really do think that he he has a real range that gets explored in a few movies, not in these movies, but 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 he is capable of a lot, and he is a, he is a very committed, dedicated guy mm-hmm. who's been in the business for thirty seven years in leading roles and has the capacity to do things that you know very few people do. Sure. Uh, P.T. Anderson basically said, uh, yeah, look, Tom Cruise is getting up there. He's 56 years old, but he's still kicking out these like amazing action movies that puts younger guys to shame. You know, there's no doubt about that. He's the old, he also said this thing, which I thought was interesting. He compared Tom Cruise to um, uh, Paul Newman. And he said, you know, like, don't, don't forget, Paul Newman was like a sort of a action star for for his years. And then he pulled out the film The Witness uh, as he got older. And, you know, and that changed his career. He went into this elder statesman kind of like actor. And he was like, and P.T. Anderson was like, hey, don't, dis- don't ever count out Tom Cruise. Don't ever dismiss Tom Cruise. Like, that guy 
is a harder worker than anybody in the industry. That guy has got more chops than anyone. And that guy's career is going to go longer than anybody else. And listen, I mean, if he doesn't kill himself on Mission Impossible yeah. 9 when he's literally surfboarding on a, on a nuclear submarine or some shit, yeah, uh, yeah that's where he'll transition into. Uh, and I hope so. I, I, like, I like that. I, but I, I don't... The thing is, is that he brings a different quality to this film, to this kind of film, which is the exact right quality to this film. He's like this empty cipher. Well, because it's built around him. Yeah, and he and he produces them. He chooses everything. He kind of like signs off the whole thing. Yeah, this is a franchise about Tom. Cruise, oh, hundred you know? percent. This is like, but but it feels. It doesn't feel sycophantic. No. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like Triple X, which is like, look how cool this guy is. But here's the deal. This is this is the this is the thing that people should learn about when when you're buying into the cult or the or the um or the like I was like cult of personality, for instance, about like a, a Tom Cruise esque person. Not that there's many people that can fall into that camp. Yeah. But like, for instance, Universal was like, We're gonna build our dark universe and base it on Tom Cruise. And then yeah. Tom Cruise had all this stuff and he wanted to do da 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 da. That doesn't work because that's not who Tom Cruise is. Is yeah. You put Tom Cruise in a movie, but he's still gonna be Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, not to say he couldn't act around it, but I think he's gotten, especially in the last ten or fifteen ish so years, other than maybe Tropic Thunder, <laughs> he's uh, he's kind of played uh, you know a version of himself, which again is a different kind of acting, and it's fine. But these films, these Mission Impossible films, are built. Like he is the he's the keystone, and the rest of it is built around him, so it all feels like it fits. Where if you just throw Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise, acting kind of like Tom Cruise in the Mummy, yeah. And the thing was that was weird there is that they wanted him to be part of an ensemble, you know. So it was like Russell Crowe, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, uh, Javier Bardem, and I was like, one of these things is not like the other, you know. No. Like, <laughs> and they're all pushing forty or fifty. Yeah, but but like Tom Cruise is not like those guys. No, you know what I mean. So. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that's why these these films work and and why Tom Cruise and he, look he's gonna we we're we not saying anything no one knows it's I, I worry that I'm softening on like the story side of it but I think this film actually does connect it's just not that interesting it's but connecting it, with the different it's using different things to connect yeah it does it does actually connect yeah. it just it's just not as compelling. Uh, you know, as as you know, the the best it, we we should be asking for better than this, but this is pretty good. Yeah, there this, you go. You know what I mean? All right. Well, this has been the only podcast about the film Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, Shahir, when I'm not falling out? No, when when <laughs> you're not uh, down with the friction. Where can folks find you? You can find me lubing myself up. Oh. Yuck. Uh, <laughs> on my website. Can you really? Is that what's on your website? Yeah, it's just... It's I like, haven't seen the rebranding yet. I have to go check that it's out. It's just a gif of me, like, putting lube on. Yeah. Ugh. To Spanish flea. I just grossed myself out. What's your website? www.shahirdowdislubing.com. No, no, shahirdowd, S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D-I-S-L-U-B-I-N-G.com. <laughs> Someone buy that domain and just put the pictures of Shahir in in uh, in Power like, Ranger like, costumes. Like, yeah, dress me up in the alien goop. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, Species Seven starring Shahir Dad. Matt, when you are uh, enjoying the the oeuvre of one Thomas Mapother, <laughs> do you 
have. Have you bought his domain name? You should do that. I know. Uh, well, you can find me reloading my own biceps uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> at matthewkroll.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Emperor MSK on Twitter and Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram. Uh, also, check out some extra credits, Wonderment. We just released one on, uh, I feel like a lot of the stuff we've been doing in extra history on YouTube is disease-based, but this is one that was actually sponsored by the Child and Teen Health Services about uh, a disease in uh, the early 1900s called pellagra. Pellagra. And it's actually a deficiency disease that actually got very politicized because really people in the South, like of the cotton economy and like the poor were only getting it. And they didn't, they, the, the, the people who ran the government and the companies were just more comfortable with it not being a deficiency. They found out it was actually a lack of uh, brewer's yeast or more specifically niacin. Okay. So like it basically became this thing where like people didn't want to say that like the workers weren't being treated well. It was a disease. Anyone could get it, but like people proved it away. Anyway, it's a fascinating story. Check that out on YouTube. Extra history. Uh, the uh, pellagra is the name of it. Very proud of that. And uh, yeah, I guess we will be back next week to talk you through maybe some more requests, maybe a new film. You don't know what's coming. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't know what's coming. You don't know the what's end coming. end you always thought. The is, end you always feared. Was coming. That's gross. Stop! <laughs> stop it! <laughs> That's gross. You, I'm going to put you in the back of that truck with the really cool shot with the water. If James Gunn has taught us anything, everything I'm going to say is, is going to be God taken out of context it. at some point in my career. <sighs> and, uh... It's gonna be gross. Everyone, I hope I hope um, this week you all get down with the friction. That's gross. We both know you need them. That's gross. Coming up again, bow, 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 b